Hello, and welcome back to page 94, the Private Eye podcast now with more episodes than Russia has leaders of the opposition. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray, and if you didn't like that joke, there will be an email address for complaints at the end. Today we will be talking about bonsai sumo wrestlers, the laughing duvet, and the singing sponge of Bali, all things found in Private Eye's Gnome Mart catalogue. But before that... A few weeks ago, the newspapers were full of headlines about another newspaper, the Daily Telegraph. The lead political commentator at the Telegraph, Peter Oborn, had resigned in disgust at the paper's editorial line, namely the decision not to criticise companies which had big advertising accounts. This would all have come as very old news to private eye readers who've been following developments of the Telegraph for the last year or more. As he resigned, Peter Oborn wrote that journalists at the Telegraph had been turning to the pages of Private Eye in order to find out what was going on at their own paper. So, for the benefit of any Telegraph journalists listening, here is Private Eye's Francis Ween with more about how it started. I think it dates from the end of 2013, when the Telegraph, quite bizarrely, appointed a new person called an Editor-in-Chief and Chief Content Officer... And he was an American called Jason Sykin. And no one at the Telegraph had ever heard of him. And they thought, who's this person who's our editor-in-chief? What qualifications does he have? And it turned out his main claim to fame was that he he was a great digital guru. Or he thought of himself as one. And he had worked at PBS, the public broadcasting service in America, as a digital person where he had put Sesame Street online and created an app for it as well. And so because he could create apps and do things online, um, the chief executive of the Telegraph, called Murdoch McLennan, um, he appointed Syker because he's a sucker for digital gurus, not knowing anything himself. All of this is leading up to the stories that have been in the news recently about the Telegraph and advertising, particularly mm. for HSBC. And was that did that trend start to emerge after Syker was appointed? It certainly got a lot worse, and I think it was partly because the newspaper didn't really have an editor as such. Um, whereas when Max Hastings or Charles Moore or somebody was editing the Telegraph, they could at least, and actually did at least, stand up to the then proprietor, Conrad Black. Um, they would run leaders that annoyed him intensely, that he disagreed with, uh, but they got away with it because they had some, you know, they said, I'm the editor of this paper and you're not. But once the editorship had been given to this strange chief content officer character who didn't do any real physical editing in the normal sense, you know, he wasn't uh, someone who went through the stories and said, right, what have we got today? Oh, let's lead on that. And he just talked about, mainly about drones, actually. (laughs) His idea was that the future of journalism lies in drones, little, um, uh, Mm -hmm. little aircraft toy aircraft because you can fly them over conflict zones or hard to get at places like you know town cities controlled by ISIS you can send a little toy aircraft over there with a camera on it and there's Jason Syken on the other side of the border (laughs) with the control and it'll take photographs and bring it back and you can see that there are certain circumstances in which a drone might help if there's some terrible disaster and you send it over the top of the disaster um, the erupting volcano, whatever it is, to get some amazing aerial photos. But it's a fairly limited use. <laughs> he seems convinced that everything in journalism will be replaced by j- drones eventually. Um, but I'm afraid that was about the limit of his editorial involvement. Right. And so because it didn't have a strong editor, it meant that the chief executive could interfere much more, which he duly did. 
and the commercial side in general, the advertising director, a man called Dave King. Um, and they just started leaning on the paper more and more to do the bidding partly of the Barclay brothers who own it to um, do things that might please them, but above all to please the advertisers uh, and friends of the chief executive or the chairman, Aidan Barclay. So if there's a company like HSBC, for most recently a bank, which um, used to advertise in the Telegraph and then withdrew its adverts, they'd had a scoop about uh, HSBC and tax dodging in the Channel Islands. And this infuriated HSBC. So Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, cancelled all HSBC advertising. And it's actually worth a lot. By that stage, it was worth £3.5 million a year, I think, the the HSBC. And so for a year, the advertising manager was trying to win them back. And eventually, HSBC said, all right, you've suffered enough. We've punished you by going away for a year. So they resumed advertising. But, of course, there was now terror on the part of the commercial people that something else would be published that would annoy HSBC. Mm. So then when this year the story broke about HSBC and the uh, leaked bank accounts and the um, tax evasion and tax avoidance and the you know the involvement, the active um, complicit involvement of HSBC in some of that, uh, this was a huge story. It was all over every other newspaper, leading the BBC bulletins, all the rest of it. Uh, the Telegraph started by ignoring it altogether on the first day. They had nothing, whatever. And then the second day in the newspaper, finally, after a lot of pleas from the person who was supposedly the editor of the Daily Telegraph, he was allowed to put in a tiny story at the bottom of page two, which is the absolute sort of dead the, zone yeah. where you dump <laughs> stuff nobody's going to read. Uh, and even then, when they had this tiny thing on page two, on the website there was nothing. I actually rang them up that afternoon on the Tuesday uh, the story had been running since Sunday, and I, I rang the Telegraph news desk and said, oh, I've got a story for you. They said, oh, good, what is it? I said, it's about HSBC and tax dodging, and it's quite easy to find out. You just copy it out of all the other papers. And he said, oh, God, and then he put me through to the financial desk, and uh, and they groaned a bit. But they disagreed, but they said, oh, I'm sure we've got it on the website. And I said, no, you haven't. I have it up here in front of me. You can do a search. There's been nothing about HSBC for days, uh, let alone about tax. And this was entirely because of... Telegraph management uh, didn't want the story mentioned at all, if possible. Yeah. They have these weird news features which have no real news tag at all. But they'll, you know, they'll find one. John Lewis is another one. They're very keen on their John Lewis ads, and so they're forever finding you know, it's the the something anniversary. You know, it's the fiftieth anniversary of some branch of John Lewis or some utterly tenuous <laughs> thing, and will then have a huge feature about the joys of John Lewis, never knowing the undersold. Right. Or, what a great company it is. Uh, so they, it's shameless, the su- sucking up of that sort. Um, and and also the suppression of other things, you know, anyone who's advertising. So you either get flattering coverage or none at all, basically. Mm. And the same thing has happened, I think, with the Qataris as well. And the Qataris, uh, that was at a time when the Barclay brothers, the Barclay family, were having a fight over ownership of three swanky London hotels. And the rival shareholders in it who wanted to take control uh, were backed by the Qatari government Um, and so the Barclays were commercially at war with the Qataris and um, lo and behold the Sunday Telegraph suddenly started a campaign whereby for nine successive weeks I think it had a story attacking Qatar on its front page Mm. saying that uh, Qatar was financing terrorism I mean other papers 
have talked about Qatar's possible um, knowledge of terrorism or that some yeah. Qatari money might have been or money might be hidden in there. Um, but no one quite so obsessively leading that, you know, leading their paper with it and running full page news features over and over again and all so virulent. And this was, as far as anyone could see, a news value um, decided by the fact that the Barclay brothers happened to own the paper. I'm sure it wouldn't have got that much coverage otherwise. Mm. These um, advertisement features, they seem to be a relatively new thing. Is that fair? There's always been interference between, or there's always been an attempt to interfere from the management of lots of papers. Yeah, I mean, it's true that the management have, but the advertising people on the whole haven't. Mm. Um, but now that it's not just the Telegraph, of course, I mean, now they're all desperately trying to find any way of making money. I mean, that's what's behind this, the financial state of the newspaper industry. And the Telegraph, oddly enough, is one of the few that isn't struggling. The Telegraph makes £60 million profit a year. Uh, the trouble is that the Barclays then take it away immediately. Right. It's handed over to them at the start of the other day. £60 million profit, it then disappears, so it doesn't stay in the Telegraph. So the Telegraph is run as if it's a really hard-up, cash-strapped organisation, yeah. endless cost-cutting, redundancies, round after round of redundancies. I mean, they've scarcely got any sub-editors left now, and you can see it because it's full of misprints and idiotic errors. I think it's gone from 100 sub-editors down to about a dozen Yeah, now? I think so. Something like that. And, yeah. um, and they're probably fearing for their lives. Mm. Uh, and so it, it runs as if it's losing lots of money, whereas, in fact, it's hugely profitable. It's just that none of the profits gets reinvested in the paper, and so Murdoch McLennan runs it um, along those lines, saying, you know, we've got to make more money, we've got to make more money, uh, because he's under pressure to hand the Barclays their £60 million cheque every year. And so things like advertorials become quite attractive, but then, you know, the Guardian does them in its own way. The Guardian has sponsored content, as does the Mail. If you look at their websites, uh, they have things that at first glance look like a story... And then you notice at the top there's some little logo and it says sponsored by. Yeah. Um, but it's, in a, every other respect, looking like a, a proper news story. Do you think there's ever any place for that, if, if it's made extremely clear where the line is, or do you think that actually they're just completely better off not being in newspapers at all? Uh, well, it'd be better off if they weren't in newspapers at all. But if you must have them, and I, I, mean, I do accept that there is a bit of a crisis in the newspaper industry and they're desperate for any adverts they can get. If they do run them, they have, they have to be designed in such a way that they're clearly not a news page or a features page. Use different typefaces, uh, different everything. Yeah. Uh, not, as now is happening more and more, actually use bylines from the paper it's appearing in. You know, journalists who work for that paper then get roped into writing what are advertorials. So it looks even, you know, you see a familiar name and a familiar yeah. headline typeface. So, I mean, that's the... That's where that's, it really does become that's an the, article. the wickedness of it, because that is a, you know, deceiving the readers or trying to deceive the readers, I think, in some cases. Yeah. And obviously there's an interest in advertisers doing that, because oh, yeah. they want, you know, they know that people look at articles a lot more than they look at adverts. Well, the, up to a point. The, I mean, the Telegraph does two huge inserts. Uh, it does an insert for the Russian government and an insert yeah. for the Chinese government. And these are pure propaganda sheets. But they are dressed up to look like news, and those have existed for years in one form or another. Yeah. Um, these little things you pull out saying such and such is a wonderful country. Mm. Um, but the, are... the Russian one and the Chinese one, the thing is they are now you know, big earners for the Telegraph, these propaganda right. supplements. And so the coverage of Russia and China is very noticeably mute, more muted than in other papers uh, over things like Ukraine. Um, they are 
as terrified of offending China and Russia as they are of upsetting HSBC. I mean, they live in a constant state of nerves, looking around them, wondering who they might have accidentally upset. And please, I didn't mean any of it. They'll eventually just produce a blank newspaper, I suppose, because that couldn't upset any advertiser at all. Francis Wien there. Now, privatised Gnome Mart is the essential compendium of all the things you never knew you didn't need, but you do need now. They include things like the Shelfie, which is a shelf to store your selfies on, Hawaiian screaming grass, or the world's oldest ant. Unfortunately, a lot of the inventions in the pages of Nomart have a very irritating habit of becoming real and then making their inventors millions, while the journalists at Private Eye languish in obscurity. Here are Ian Hislop and Nick Newman talking about one of the ones that got away. We got a letter in this week um, about the Nomart series of you know, supposedly spoof adverts, and you came in and assured me this was a terrifically good joke, which was the selfie drone. Um, which would be hours of fun, and it's this drone that has a camera, and it flies around over people's it, heads. It was last Christmas's must-have Christmas uh, <laughs> gadget, I think. Yeah, well, um, your idea of an amusing idea has actually made someone £1.3 million. Pounds. No. Yeah, a reader's written in saying, the selfie drone, Hexo, I don't know what that is, plus raised £1.3 million on Kickstarter to fund it. No. A drone that flies up to 60 metres above your head, circles around you, giving you an all-round serial selfie. You need no skill, said shareholder <laughs> Luke Giroud. In our selfie culture, everybody wants amazing shots of themselves, and we want to give users great images. That's from the BBC that, News website. That is so annoying. That's so annoying. I've lost £1.3 million. Pounds. <laughs> I feel gutted. In typical Nick, he comes in with what he thinks is an amusing idea, and it's not amusing. It's an enormous waste of money. We should now have millions of pounds, and we've got one cheap joke in the bank. I've got bad news for you. I've been through looking at old Nomart items, and things that have been in Nomart in the past include cabbie call. Uh, it's raining, there's not a taxi in sight. Just press your cabbie call, and every taxi for miles around will hear your ultrasonic bleep and come running. That's Uber. I don't believe it! <laughs> Again! Was that ten years ago? It was 25 years ago. Oh, oh my 1990 goodness. Book of Gnome Marks. <laughs> uh, you had Uber, you had the smart wheelie bin, which sorts your rubbish, and that's already been done. They, they, they did one in London which took data from your mobile phone, identified you, and then beamed adverts at you. Unbelievable. <laughs> Well, when we took over doing Gnome Mart from the previous lot, who'd been doing it since about the 19th century, Richard Ingram's claimed that he'd done the electric toothbrush. I mean, more or less before <laughs> electricity had been invented. Um, and Barry had one he said he'd done. Yeah, I think Barry was the master of, of Gnome Marts um, down the ages. And he, he, uh, he would come up with sort of fantastically sort of bizarre ideas, which you always... The, the secret of great Gnome Marts is stuff that you think, well... Actually, I find that quite useful. Like um, uh, Barry came up with puzz tabs, which are little stickers that you stick over your old uh, crossword puzzles <laughs> to uh, recycle them. Now, I would buy puzz tabs. <laughs> well, he also did the um, wellies that have a light in the toe, so that on those dark nights when you're going out to, I don't know, take out the wheelie bin or something, you have a torch in your own wellies. And then, of course, these turned into a product. Um, and he was furious that um, he failed to make any <laughs> There is uh, more, a more recent one is the Air Plectrum for air guitar lovers, <laughs> which is just an empty space in a uh, that's being sold now as a card. I don't believe it. Yep, 
Well, one of the the very first ones we did um, together was um, uh, pe- for people who suffered from lone socks in their laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could buy one pair sock, one <laughs> one spare sock, um, to uh, complement your other lone sock. <laughs> and these uh, lone socks came in packets of two. <laughs> and I think M and S now do those, don't they? They yeah, they do. To replace do them. Yeah. I have found a few which do seem genuinely useful. Um, there's the Clarkson gone, which turns off your television when it detects Jeremy Clarkson ah, speaking on it. Now you've got BBC producers doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's become life. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of gone things, actually. There's the flannel gone as well, which is say goodbye to thought for the day boredom with flannel gone. <laughs> Just Fit to your radio, tune to the Today programme, and when that vicar comes to the microphone, hey presto, he's off. Which is, I think, would sell. Would sell a lot of units. Yeah, I think you'd have to be multi-faith now, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to have everybody off. <laughs> Why ants? Oh, that must come from Peter Cook, yes, I think. Yes, he was obsessed by ants. By sort of um, bizarre sort of killer ants and things like that. It was novelty ants. Novelty ants, yes. Amongst all these sort of useless gimmicks and gadgets, there were always some sort of dried creature which didn't really live. Peter was determined that you could get ants. Singing ants, ants that screamed, ants (laughs) that did a little dance. And every year he'd come in and say, I've got this brilliant idea for ants. <laughs> and there was always a very small warning underneath the advert which said that the ants may be lost. <laughs> there are a few more I just wanted to mention because I like them so much. The Sprinklo gerb, which is a sprinkler system in case a fire breaks out in your gerbil's cage. Essential uh, yep. <laughs> product to have for anybody with a young family. No one's ever lost money in Britain by sucking up to pets. <laughs> um, that was another of... Um, Barry's great um, intuitions that he knew that if you sold something with Fido, Pooch, Gerbil or Hamster on it, it was a winner. What about Hawaiian screaming grass, which as soon as it gets above one inch in height, it lets out a piercing scream so that you have to cut it. That is brilliant. That was Peter Cook again, I'm afraid. But, but often you can't sort of beat the original. We're great fans, obviously, of, uh, of innovations catalogues. Yeah. And um, one of my favourites was a sort of seasonal one at Christmas, which was you could buy a Christmas tree, uh, which actually um, it snowed. It sort of let out snow. And it had, and I'm not making this up, this is absolutely genuine. It came with a sound recording of the hush of falling snow. <laughs> Um, I also like the phony phone, which is for old people who, are, who talk to themselves, but it looks like you're having a conversation <laughs> with a loved one. <laughs> oh dear. That's um, our, our aged former editors, I think, probably. <laughs> I mean, there doesn't seem to be any end in sight for it, because it just... People still keep making this stuff. They do, and all our newer contributors just come up with um, ideas that I think, well, that, that surely must be done. <laughs> What did we do? We crowdfund it. Yes. I think that's it. Or beg. That's, <laughs> that's the other word for it. <laughs> oh, the horror masks. The horror masks. Oh, yes, actually. Yes. The horror masks have, over the years, included Patricia Hewitt, David Miliband, uh, Bruce Forsyth, Richard Branson, Nigel Farage, Ian Hislop, and more. <laughs> I expect I was on holiday and the loyal staff... <laughs> 
Terrify your friends and family with this frighteningly realistic Ian Hislop horror mask. Just put on mask and watch them scream with boredom as they think you are going to drone on about 50 years of satire and try and sell them yet another private eye book. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the loyal staff. <laughs> thank you for listening to the last ever episode of Page 94. <laughs> Yeah, Andy Murray gone. Yeah. <laughs> this, this new device called the Private Eye Podcast. You put it on and bingo! Andy Murray's gone! Ian Hislop and Nick Newman. That is everything from Page 94 for this week. We hope you have enjoyed it. If you have, then you can write to us on Twitter. We are at Private Eye News. Or you can email strobes at private-eye.co. Lawsuits to the usual address. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.